0: Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. You're home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill and good faith. And if you appreciate what we're doing here, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash politics and religion, patreon.com slash politics and religion. Your support through Patreon will really help us continue to have conversations like the one we're having today with Christy Smith. You may have heard me mention the name Christy Smith before, Christy was the California State Assembly member in my home district from 2018 through 2020. And we've also discussed the U.S. House District of California 25, which is now California 27. The current representative, Republican Mike Garcia, won the district by, you guessed it, 333 votes. We've mentioned that before out of 300 and actually over 340,000 that were cast. Uh, Well, Mike and Christy are running against each other again, and this time there are some differences, including we have Mike's voting record and public statements while in office, which seem to represent only the most extreme MAGA fringe, and not the entirety of this very purple district, but we'll get into that. We have many new listeners since the last time we spoke with Christy in the spring of 2021, so I'll give a brief intro, and then we'll dive right in. As mentioned, Christy previously served in California's State Assembly, where she authored nine bills which became law focusing on education reform, homeowner protections, college affordability, good governance, and protection for victims of human trafficking. Prior to the state assembly, Christy served two terms as governing board member of the Newhall School, School District, notably helping to secure $60 million in resources for facility and technology upgrades for the school district. It's also worth noting that Christy graduated high school right here in Santa Cruz Valley, went to College of the Canyons before graduating from UCLA, and has raised a family right here in the district that she's running to represent in the U.S. Congress. Christy Smith, what an honor to have you on the program again. How are you?
1: I'm well. It's good to be with you again, Corey.
0: Yeah, yeah. So glad we could put it together. And we're in the heat of campaign season right now, so it's a pretty timely conversation. Right. Yeah. So for folks who aren't familiar with your background, uh, would you mind giving us some of your backstory, where you were born, moving to Santa Clarita at an early age, and then some of those formative experiences growing up that continue to shape what drives you today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was actually born in Würzburg, Germany, on an army base. Uh, My dad was in the military during Vietnam, was stationed in Germany doing some satellite work. And um, we didn't live there very long, so I was born there, an American citizen, since I was born um, on base. But then we moved home when I was about six months old. Home at the time was um, Indiana. And so that's where I get, you know, some of my Midwestern sensibilities, you know, some of the the principles you and I share in common, I think, come from that Midwest upbringing for a little while. Um, and then my dad was offered a job uh, opportunity here in California in 1979. Um, what I hadn't talked about a lot previously, because both of my parents were, were still with us, was the fact that, um, you know, theirs was a marriage that was pretty fraught with uh, domestic violence and some untreated mental health issues that really kind of shaped where we went as a family and how things went here so uh we struggled you know my parents eventually separated uh, my mom raised us a single mom raising three kids which you know in any area of, of la or in, in california is, is quite a, an economic challenge uh, was back then still is today and and we had a lot to overcome as a family but we did and part of what drew me, to public service was the notion that Government does have an important role to play in putting a safety net under people um, who go through, you know, extreme circumstances and have challenges to face to make sure that they um, don't fall completely out of out of our social safety net. And there's a lot of improvement we need to make on that right now, um, with so many people being unhoused and facing challenges and needing mental health help, things that they can't get access to. That frankly, we could do better at. So continue to be inspired by the prospect of what uh, you know good government can do for people in that respect, especially when it comes to education. You mentioned the fact that, you know, I went to a community college. So did my mom, actually. That's how she got herself out of a circumstance where she was facing abuses she was able to go to our local community college get a nursing degree to be able to, to have a job that would, you know, support three kids and so um, because I didn't have money to go to a four year university right out of high school I went to that same community college and then was able to transfer and go to UCLA, um, we need to continue to expand. Those kind of opportunities, we need to shore up all of our local neighborhood K through 12 schools and make sure they're the best possible learning environments for our young ones. But then, you know, from there, we need to continue to connect people with opportunities that are affordable, that don't bind them with decades of debt, you know, in their pursuit of making their own lives better. So, you know, all things that are are super, super important to I me. Mean, you also, you mentioned heat. We are in the heat of this campaign, but we are in the heat literally um, a, sus- a sustained heat wave here in California, along with a drought, which indicate the absolute dire need to do more uh, on climate change and urgently. Um, it's an absolute emergency at this point. So another big area of public policy that motivates me.
0: I'm really glad you brought that up because my oldest kid, Savannah, who you met that first day that we met at the Home and Garden Show. She, uh, Savannah made sure that I ask you about that uh, a little bit later in the in the conversation. So we'll get to that. I'm glad you brought it up. But uh, since you brought up a little bit of your educational journey, I'd love to for you to go into that a little bit more and um, whether your own experience was influential in that becoming a central tenet of your own political activism
1: yeah absolutely 100 not only did i go to the local uh community college because it's what i could afford and and back then a semester's worth of full-time tuition was uh, fifty dollars you know plus your books and your ancillary fees so you could do a semester of community college for about you know give or take given the books, Um, but while I was on campus I also needed to work to be able to support myself so through all of my college experience I was working at least two jobs and sometimes three, but of the jobs that I had a couple of them were on campus and I started out. um, doing a little bit of time in the financial aid office, Uh, but then a job I absolutely loved is that I became a peer mentor in a program called EOPS and that was partnering. um, first generation, particularly English language learner students with someone on campus who could help them navigate the process. And um, it was work that really proved to me um, the structural barriers in place for people looking to pursue higher education and to be able to stick with it. A number of the students um, that I helped really had some very, very dire circumstances and challenges that while I was able to help connect them with the financial aid office or tutoring that they might need, kind of the other things in their life, whether it was, you know, uh, childcare issues or needing to work to help support the family business, um, there were things that just simply kept people from being in the classroom and and pursuing their educational goals. So um, that was compelling for me, as was being um, elected in my early 20s as the union leader for the classified employees at the college, negotiating my first union contract, contract in my early 20s, um, on behalf of several hundred employees there at the college, um, also really solidified my support of of worker rights and collective bargaining. So it was a formative experience um, all the way around, you know, the character building of, of having to work that hard to put myself through school, but now realizing it is not realistic. I mean, people now can't Pay for a whole semester of school, no matter how many jobs they're working right and keep a roof over their head, even if they are doing the three jobs it when you've got tuition in the 10s of 1000s of dollars it's just out of reach for so many people so understanding how much more work we need to do again to connect people with opportunities that doesn't drown them in debt. And you know there's the ability to go on to UCLA, one of the top public universities in the country and finish a degree in political science with um, a lot of really great professors who were highly motivating. um you know, just kept me kind of in this space of understanding just how significant the role of public policy work can be in people's lives. and and contrasting that with with where we are now, where all sides, both sides of the political spectrum, I think, used to have a healthy respect for the lane that government can and should be in and now really having so many folks focused on what are endless culture wars instead of a focus on good public policy and um, good expenditures of of public money, of taxpayer money.
0: Yeah. So a lot of follow-up questions there, one of which was you might have just buried one of our leads here. So you negotiated a union contract. You must have been in your early 20s at that point. How did you learn about unions and contracts and negotiation? How did you learn all you needed to do to effectively lead that negotiation?
1: Uh, Research, asking people, (laughs) I was new to it. And uh, there was a lot of support from within uh, the institution of the union itself at at the local and state level. And then working with, you know, my colleagues who were also classified employees to kind of establish what our priorities were, learn what the prior precedent was for negotiations, where we wanted to go, and then having the great good fortune because of College of the Canyon's amazing uh, leadership throughout the years of of having a supportive administrative team who really wanted to get to yes on as many of those bargaining issues as they could because they did truly value their staff and, and knew how important a happy staff was to a good, education experience for the students there. So, um, you know, it was a pretty steep learning curve. It was a fast learning curve, but I was surrounded by great people and and we got the job done.
0: Yeah. Now, I do remember that you mentioned at one point you identified as a Republican or you didn't fully. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it it was about that time when I first started college. I was a registered Republican. So my first election, I still have a Bush quail T-shirt from a rally. Um, My first election, I actually voted Republican.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So I bring it up because you you brought up, you know, endless culture wars and these things that get in the way of really having productive conversations across our political dispositions in order to achieve uh, good public policy. But I do want to dig in a little bit on a current, poli- well, I don't know if you could call it a policy as, as much as an action, Biden's recent action on student debt. Uh, Do you have any uh, views on the action that he took? And do you think that it's going to stick?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was critically important. And and I can personalize it so much. So my youngest daughter is a first year, first grade teacher. And so her dad and I took out some loans to be able to support her undergraduate degree. We said the teaching credential um, and the rest of your education is on you. And so she's she's got some debt. She's got some loans. um, But she's also got a teacher starting salary. So for her, the amount of loan debt that she had meant about 30% of her income um, in these first few years was going to be going to pay down her student debt. And now having some relief from that means she's much more likely to be able to stay in the profession. And we need teachers, like we need teachers all across this country, Florida and a couple of other states especially. But it's exactly those kind of professions, the skilled professions, your medical professionals and others, where it takes several years of training and experience and it, you know, very expensive debt if you're borrowing some or, or all of that to complete that education. And, and people graduate from those programs unable to really see their way clear. Um, to when they're going to have any kind of disposable income, let alone, you know, keep food on the table and keep a roof over their head. So it's important. It's meaningful. And now what I really appreciate about the president and our current secretary of education, Cardenas, is that they understand this can't be a one and done prospect. Right. We've got to get to the heart of what's driving these costs and bring the costs down for everybody while expanding opportunities to have better Pell Grant support and other non- loan support for getting people through college
0: now i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you about something when i first became aware of your career in uh, in public service i think it was when you were on the heart uh school district uh you were serving on the board there there was one particular uh, charter school where there was great contention my brother would kill me if i didn't at least ask you if your views on charters this charter school movement have evolved over the last few years.
1: No, they, they've been what they always were. When I started at the U.S. Department of Education during the Clinton administration, it was the the infancy of the charter school movement. And what charters were were this potential for dynamic groups of teachers and administrators to kind of break the mold within a traditional school district setting and try to move the needle for student achievement. And so they weren't they were kind of set free from some of the bureaucracy. Bureaucratic parameters that sometimes got in the way, frankly, what unfortunately it expanded into in some quarters was an opportunity for private interests to have their hands in the public till. By no means is that every charter, a lot of charters are doing great things are and are an important part of the county or local school district that they are a part of. But what we need to make sure we continue to do is not have it be about a profit motive at any school, but about a, a student achievement and student success model. And so as long as we're, we keep driving in that direction, um, we're going to be in a good spot. But the other thing that we did, though, is kind of lose the thread of, again, making sure every neighborhood public school is a good school. And we need to be mindful of the fact that when there is a charter that happens in any school district especially in in areas like California where funding is based on student attendance, there is a redistribution of resources. And in that redistribution, we need to make sure that we're not leaving any student behind. So again, charters are an important part of a lot of districts. They're performing well, they're doing what they intended. Um, You know, you look at Granada Hills Charter High School here in the district and they've been academic decathlon champions time and time again, right? We know they're moving the needle there, but we need to make sure that every student, who is meant to be served, you know, in terms of both federal and state policy. So that's our special ed kids and kids with unique challenges, that they're getting the same level of service. And that when those resources are redistributed across a district, that we're not leaving any kids behind.
0: Hey, I just wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really like. It's called Preconceived. It's a show hosted by Zale Mednik that examines the preconceptions that shape how we view the world and challenges the paradigms by which we live our lives. On each episode of Preconceived, Zale talks to researchers, experts, and other luminaries to examine both our approach to major life choices, but also our perspectives on topics to which we may have been overly conditioned towards certain opinions. We think you'll especially enjoy... Episode 66, Unorthodox, Leaving Extremist Religion with Gene Steinberg, Founder of Freedom. There are so many others that you can really dig into. There's episode 44 about helicopter parents, how to raise an adult with the former Stanford dean. There's one about polyamory with a sociologist and an expert researcher on the topic. There's one about the malleability of human memory. With a psychologist and a memory expert. There's so many others that you'll really appreciate and enjoy. So listen to Preconceived wherever you get your podcasts. These are all intertwined issues, and we could talk about this for a couple hours alone. As you might remember, I come from a family of educators. My mother, 35 years in the kindergarten room, Uh, my father was a a guidance counselor, teacher, as well as worked for the, um, the, The school district uh, in New York City, working conflict resolution, my brother, my uncle, all educators. And um, one of the tensions, even for folks who are part of the union, in fact, my parents are both retired and benefit from uh, their union membership, lifelong union membership. One of the tensions there is that everybody knew in every school that they were in who the bad teachers were. And yet um, one of the things, you know, the union provided a great many benefits, but one of every, it seemed like every union fight that came up, the idea of merit-based pay grades was just a non-starter. There's any Mm -hmm. number of issues along those lines where there's this tension between, you know, something that you expressed before about, you know, it's hard to, you know, come out uh, get a degree, oftentimes having to get a, a graduate degree and then be faced with a teacher's salary, which let's face it, especially in California, isn't quite going to uh, give you a middle class income. But uh, so there are these tensions between wanting to figure out ways of paying teachers more bottom line versus some of the tensions that are built in uh, from largely unionized trade. Yeah. Do you want to respond to that at all?
1: Yeah, it, it all comes down to to pay for me. I mean, the, the more you pay people, um, the better the quality of, of candidate that you are going to attract. But I haven't found um, it to be the case that school districts aren't very serious about supporting good instruction. I think that's a mythology that's been bandied about a lot and and laying the blame and the responsibility at... Teacher's doorstep instead of the societal challenges that most of our kids are walking into the classroom with, you know, um, you can't claim that somebody is a bad teacher when they've got a classroom of 30 kids. And ten of them speak a language that's not English as their first language, regardless of, of what grade they're in. And several of them are probably on some kind of IEP, which is a you know for kids with special challenges, um, end up with with that kind of learning plan. Where several of them might be at home in domestic circumstances that give them a little bit of trauma that they bring into the classroom with them. Um, kids who may not have had uh, you know a meal that morning before they come to school for whatever the reason is. Thank goodness here in California now we're we're now providing those meals to all of our kids but to lay that entirely at teacher's feet at a time when our school district budgets have been brought down to the bare bones. You know, you're talking about not enough school psychologists, not enough librarians, not enough aides in the classroom. teachers are at a real disadvantage right now. So not only are they woefully underpaid, they're underhelped, they're under supported, and uh, we need to get a real understanding of the challenges our kids are walking into the classroom with and get a better handle on that in order to support our teachers while also incentivizing them. And if, if there are some challenges that they face instructionally in a classroom, maybe they've changed grade levels or year after year, there might be a persistent challenge. There are ways around that. And that's what really talented leadership teams do. They can help re-educate, retrain teachers who are, you know, later into their career. But right now, Frank, we're just losing teachers. You know, the, the best time to lose a new teacher is in the first five years. Fewer than 60% persist right now. And so we do, We have a real challenge on our hands, but it's going to come from supporting the profession publicly um, by acknowledging the, their worth in their training with a better salary and then giving them the supports in place that they need, given the challenges of the, the modern classroom and the modern student.
0: Yeah. No. And just to clarify a comment that I made sort of in passing about everybody knew who the bad teachers were. Listen, I've been to those schools. And, you know, like I said, my family has been in education. So 95, if not 99% of teachers that I know are really committed to their craft. But there is that, you know, small percentage of folks who frankly are just mailing it in. And the whole school, the whole staff, the whole faculty knew who those folks were, but there wasn't you know, kind of to one of the points that you're making that wasn't necessarily the support or the accountability to provide those teachers, the training to get past whatever it was that they, the, the wall that they were hitting. And now listen, there's more obstacles than ever, you know, right. there's, there's, you know, screaming parents, you get a bug up their orifice about whatever it might be. They they listened to a, a news program and decided that they don't want their kids to learn about critical race theory as uh, third graders as if that was ever happening in the first place. But that's another <laughs> that's another yeah. story. Sorry, I'm yeah. going off the rails here. So how did you first decide when how and when did you first decide to get into politics?
1: In fifth grade. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I was just, I was that, look, I was that nerdy kid in elementary school and you get that first bite uh, of American history and the founding of our country and the, and the constitution and democracy and all of its incredible uh, potential mistakes in the past too, you know, mistakes that we had to acknowledge and, and try to continue to grow and learn from, but just um, kind of that profound sense of, oh my gosh, this is kind of the coolest thing ever. And so it's been a calling for a long time. Didn't always necessarily think it would be an elected office. This, and that's why I started early, you know, in my career in just straight policy work, but I'm still compelled and I still have that same faith and that same vision that um, the roadmap that the founders laid out for us is still the right path. Um, we just have to ask some of the bigger, more expansive questions now to make sure that we stay on that path and, and preserve democracy.
0: I'm glad that you did uh, set out on this on this path, and it's encouraging. Even though, as we've discussed from our very very first meeting, we have uh, we have differences politically, uh, some positions that that we hold. Um, But that's okay. That's, as you said in our very first meeting, that's what democracy is all about, you know, figuring out how to, you know, be neighbors and how to be represented across these differences, which I give you a lot of credit for including me specifically in your small business committee when you were in the uh, state assembly. I did want to ask you, though, uh, things are different now than when you first ran for office. How is life out on the trail compared to your first run for Congress or even, you know, when when you first ran for the assembly?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting and it, it's a real commentary on our times. I think out on the trail, it's, it's absolutely pleasant, you know, uh, meeting people face to face, even people who don't agree with you. Uh, they're kind, they're civil, they're respectful. Whereas in the social media space, you know, it, it can be pretty ugly. I had to report a couple of comments over the weekend for mm. inappropriate content, you know, and and people just feel uh, so unrestrained in, in their commentary in those spaces. And so, you know. I am, I'm still hopeful, though, because, again, when I'm out in the community, when I am face-to-face with people, even those who don't disagree, we can agree to disagree and still move forward in a conversation. So I think that people are exhausted. I mean, COVID itself was exhausting, but kind of that, you know, really contentious hyper-partisanship that gripped us for so long, I feel like we're finally starting to break free of that. And people really are much more interested in, in reestablishing a sense of community. Uh, and so that's what makes me hopeful.
0: How are you able to campaign differently this time As opposed to 2020. I mean, we all kind of lived through the zombie apocalypse, so we know where we were, but specifically your campaign strategies, your day to day. What is how how different does that look?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we made a decision across the board as a a Democratic Party in the 2020 cycle, uh, not. To canvas door to door and not to hold in person events. So, the extent of in person events that I was able to hold in that campaign were literally drive throughs. We would choose a park parking lot, let people know we were gonna be there, um, masks up, you know, they stay in their car, I stay six feet away, and they're able to ask me questions. That was the extent of voter interaction that we could have in 2020. And now this cycle with you know, thankfully, um, vaccinations getting in enough arms and seeing our infection rates going down, we are able to do traditional campaigning again, which is door-to-door canvassing, in-person events, uh, and really being face-to-face with people again. And it's changed the energy and the dynamic of the campaign, for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, going back just a little bit, I did want to ask you, so you've, you've faced some tension you know it's as you say there's it's pretty fraught out there at times e, you know frankly even reading some of the comments on threads uh, that mike garcia your opponent puts out it it makes me cringe i obviously have grave differences specifically as it comes to his votes to overturn the election but you know i, I he's still my neighbor he's still somebody i right. might see out in the soccer field or at a chamber event and it's important that we keep things civil and not cross certain lines of of civility and and these areas of threat and violence. Um, how's your family dealing with that?
1: Oh, thanks. Uh, they've tuned it out a lot more this cycle. Frankly, they've all had to put their social media on lockdown, and they really don't look at a lot because it is it's hard and it's hurtful. It's hard to not respond so but they've been good they know that's part of their job that's the assignment you know uh, try to tune it out and, and and let me do the hard work of being out front but it's unfortunate you've lived here a long time like i have and and this is this is a community like you said we're people we're getting together on the soccer fields and the baseball things and the all the numerous nonprofit organizations here that raise money for really incredible uh, causes we're, we're all in rooms together a lot And we need to be able to get back to a point where that doesn't feel uncomfortable. If someone who has disagreed with you on Facebook, you know, is at the next table.
0: Yeah. No. And to your point, I've I've had uh, plenty of Republicans on this program, local Republicans, you know, Bill when he Bill Miranda, when he was mayor and and Scott, you know, he's he's finishing out his term as state senator. Um, Mm -hmm. So and, you know, listen, when I see any any number of folks across party lines, it's always nice to be able to give a smile and a handshake and and talk about, you know, talk about them Dodgers and how my Mets beat the Dodgers last time around. So (laughs) uh, stuff like that. But um, but so speaking of uh, I I did want to get into a little bit of politics. Uh, By many accounts, uh, suburban college educated women will be a major factor in this race. But in California, 27, many college educated women are Christians. Who attend mm-hmm. theologically conservative churches and who've never voted for someone with a d before their name so while i don't believe uh realistically large percentages of those folks will vote differently some might i have this imagine well it's not imaginary i went to this uh, sunday school class at grace baptist for the better part of 10 15 years and whether it was 20 people in that classroom or 30 people in that classroom after main church you know the main church service I'm here to tell you, not all of them are gonna change their vote, but there is one, two, maybe three of those folks who are persuadable. So if you're visiting my old Sunday school class at Grace, what might you say to those folks to persuade the one or two who are persuadable that this time it's okay, if not imperative, to vote for a candidate with a D before her name?
1: Sure, well, I mean, first and foremost, it's about action on issues that we care about. Um, Number one, saving our democratic institutions and that is important to americans across the board and um not every religious persuasion necessarily ties to a political persuasion there's a lot of diversity there but across the board americans and this has now popped as the number one issue when people are polled in this election cycle what matters to you most it's saving our democratic institutions and that means the right to vote and the idea that state legislatures cannot overturn the will of the people within their state when it comes to a presidential election. Those two things are key. So making sure that we are defending the the franchise to vote, expanding that franchise, making it as easy as possible to vote, given the constraints of modern life and how hard it is sometimes to show up on on a Tuesday, which in some states, that's what they're limited to, right? But how many more states can we get to go the way of California, where every registered voter gets a vote by mail ballot? We need to Make it easy to vote in America and defend that as, a, as an important American value. And the other thing I would say is on issues where we may disagree to understand that I would be an elected official whose ear you will still have, you will still have a seat at the table to express your difference of opinion, because that's how I learned, that's how I become a better policymaker, to find out what your difference is about and what it's based on um, and go from there. And and maybe some of the times we're, again, like you and I have, agree to disagree But you you will deserve to be heard as someone who is my constituent and also to fundamentally understand and uh, know that I respect your religious beliefs. I am someone who was raised in both a a Methodist and Baptist household. Dad was a, a Baptist. Mom was a Methodist. I grew up going to church. I have reverence for the importance of the teachings of of all religions in people's lives and and what that brings to bear on what their political philosophy is. And it's not something we should shy away from talking about, frankly. It's an important part of who we are. I still very also strongly believe in defined separation of church and state, but that doesn't mean that we don't understand that people's own religious personal philosophy doesn't inform certain positions that they take.
0: It's interesting because you, you sort of intuitively went to my next question, uh, and for the record, I've invited Congressman Mike Garcia to to this program multiple times with uh, no response. But um, and, and if he comes on and I ever do get a chance to have a conversation with him, whether it's on the program or not, I would share these concerns. One of my gravest critiques of of uh, Congressman Garcia is that he doesn't truly represent California 27. So. So for those that aren't familiar with this district, we've talked about it a little bit before, but this is not Georgia 14, where the infamous uh, MTG represents an 80% red district. This is California 27, where uh, it was uh, California 25 when Mike won by one-tenth of 1%, not 1%, but one-tenth of 1%, a purple district. Yet Mike, in his voting record and virtually all of his public statements, exhibits time after time that he only represents, frankly, a radical MAGA fringe of today's Republican Party. Uh, And not only does he not represent the rest of his constituency, if you look at his Twitter feed or his Fox News or Fox Business hits, he consistently expresses a disdain for those who are outside of that extremist wing. Uh, So not talking about political strategy, but actual representation here, you kind of alluded to it before. This district has been represented by a Republican every term since 1993, with the exception of uh, Katie Hill's tenure from 2019 to 2020. So how would you represent folks who don't typically vote for Democratic candidates? And how would you be sure to include voices of the folks in this district who are often on the other side of political issues than you?
1: Sure. As I did before, when I was in the state legislature and when I was on the school board, um, you have a role to play as an elected representative of an entire community, and that is to throw the doors open wide and to hear everyone and to serve everyone the same with respect to constituent services. And what I have found over all of my years of public service is what voters appreciate the most, even if they disagree with you on an issue. If they understand what your guiding principles are, where those guardrails are in place that define who you are and how you're going to make decisions. So, you know, some of the conversations we've already had, I will always be a staunch defender of the institutions of our democracy, the right to vote, a protected right to vote and ensuring that state legislatures can't override the will of the people in a national election, um, that I will always stand up for and defend social security and medicare as uh, the most important anti-poverty programs in american history those are bright lines for me um the need to move on the climate crisis and environmental action are bright lines for me and things that i think are evidence-based and and compelling when you explain that to voters they understand and they say okay i'm gonna i would like to give you my point of view on xyz of those things but i understand where you're coming from and i think when you are clear about the overarching principles, people appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And just to attest, uh, because I am in this district and you did represent me as a state assembly member, number one, the result of our initial conversation, you did invite me. And I thought, frankly, you were giving me lip service, but it was a very real thing to come and join in those discussions in the small business committee. We had several meetings. And again, we probably ended up uh, still having differences Majority of the time, but I did see language. You know, if I remember correctly, language specifically pertaining to workers' comp and how we Mm -hmm. could. uh, There there were some dominoes that we could, you know, we could move around, if you will, to help uh, with regard to as uh, minimum wage was rising, to to mitigate some of the effects of small business owners. So, again, we still ended up uh, deferring on a a number of things, but just being able to have the conversation and and uh, discovering areas. Of actual policy that that um, we could agree upon, and that I felt uh, I felt heard, and I felt represented. So yeah. the other the other things I did want to affirm here, just as an engaged citizen and and, and as a ver- voter, this isn't just rhetoric that we're talking about protecting the democratic process. You know, folks voted to uh, about 150 Republican representatives voted to overturn the elections in Pennsylvania on January, the evening of January 6th. And then the um, the Electoral College uh, votes of Arizona on January 7th. Mike was one of them. Uh, Mike's uh, votes since then have represented that he's just doubled down again and again. Like, you know, in the the Congress's uh, committee to investigate what happened on January 6th, Uh, There was a vote taken in Congress to subpoena uh, Steve Bannon. Uh, To me, that was just such low hanging fruit for Mike to indicate that he really cared about the democratic process and cared about Congress's role in oversight. And just uh, vote after vote after vote, uh, there were things. But also there are things it's not just about looking at January 6th. It's about it's very real maybe not necessarily here in California, but we have to be diligent to look for candidates. There are state attorneys general, there are state secretaries Absolutely. of state who are controlling the democratic process, who are who are election deniers. So- right.
1: Yeah, no, county level officials. And you know this was what was so galling to me in the days after our race was finally decided. And it was one of the last in the country to be decided again, because we had two county officials, one Republican elected official in Ventura County, and then an appointed- official nonpartisan official in LA County, but appointed by an all democratic, nearly board of supervisors, one Republican. Those officials went out of their way to have this be as transparent and accountable a process as one could hope for as a candidate and as a voting citizen. Every attempt was made to rectify every ballot that had any kind of an issue, if it had been ripped, if the signature couldn't be validated and matched, both campaigns were given the same opportunity with our attorneys present in the room to go reach out to those voters to cure every single one of those ballots right up until the last official moment of ballots being counted before the vote had to be certified. So for him to have then gone on to the extreme media outlets that he did after that and call into question the validity of not only our election, but elections across the country when he had lawyers in the room is really just insidious and wrong. It's just so wrong.
0: Yeah, there's something about uh, on, on the campaign material and in election integrity That's uh, I don't know. It just gets under my skin. Come on, Mike. You know, that's the de minimis. uh, It's something that that plays well on Fox Business or Fox News or OANN or. Well,
1: and look, we we have to talk about the importance of truth in our elections now, too. And unfortunately, I think we're at a moment where a lot of our main sources of media are letting us down in their, you know, Assignment as the fourth estate to get to truth, not to try to find balance where no balance exists, but to actually deliver truth and let people make that decision for themselves through a process of critical thinking. But when you've got one party that just flat out lies, I mean, the the number of times that my opponent has voted against a major piece of legislation and then put his name on a piece of legislation that is a sound alike bill, like the Violence Against Women Act, like the Inflation Reduction Act, he's done it time and time again. To try to make people believe that he's been on the right side when he's voted on the wrong side, and it's just, it's deceptive, it's dishonest, and it speaks to his profound level of disrespect for the voters in this district.
0: So you bring up an interesting point. It, it it really is difficult to buck one's major party. Are there pieces of legislation or issues where you might have to take an independent stance uh, against? Uh, against Nancy Pelosi or President Biden. Yeah. What, what would be sure. some instances like that?
1: Absolutely. Well, you know what? You were speaking to it earlier about the work that we did together when you were on my business advisory committee. Out of that work, you're right, I did move um, kind of more aggressively in some workers comp reform spaces that need to happen. Wish I could have stayed longer to be able to do that. But it was the one vote that I took against my party on a budget vote, which is a no, no, the caucus doesn't want you to to vote against the caucus on a budget vote. You know, it has consequences. So I had to call my assembly speaker the night before and say, I'm not going to be with you on this. You know, consequences will be what they will. But it was the um, ability for small businesses to claim their net operating loss during COVID. So we had our California Department of Public Health and federal health officials saying we needed to shut down in-person businesses. And we were talking about not letting business owners write down That loss in the upcoming tax years. That just was fundamentally wrong to me. And so I voted in opposition of my party. I lost a big committee assignment uh, that I loved. I knew that would be a consequence, but if I had it to do over again, I would. It was the right vote to take to protect the greatest number of people when another budgetary alternative could have been offered up to meet that same need.
0: So there is a very real consequence for having to buck your own party. What are some of the other consequences that you might face as Congressperson uh, Christy Smith with uh, Speaker Pelosi or, or whoever the speaker might be in the next term?
1: Yeah, I mean, typically it's it's things like sometimes it's probably just a, a talking to, and that's when you've got your party whips, right? And they're, they're doing their vote count and they they need you or they don't. What a lot of people don't realize, though, it's in these swing districts where you have the greatest amount of influence on any given policy, especially if the caucus needs your vote. You can really lean into that moment that your vote might be needed, but it comes at great political cost to you. And you can use that leverage to try to influence change in the bill itself by an amendment, um, or by asking the author for for a change, so it's a higher level sometimes of responsibility to come from a swing state. It's a challenge that I like because I love to explore upside down and right side up every policy that I look at and figure out. You know what are the unintended consequences, the unintended costs, and get to the best final version of a bill. But you know you have to understand that sometimes when you do go against your party, it will come with a consequence.
0: So you point out that this is indeed a swing district, and I I refer to it as a purple district. One of the other constituents or one of the other key groups in our district includes Latino voters. Uh, So Mm -hmm. Mike Madrid and Chuck Rocha, longtime national Republican and Democratic strategists, respectively, have both been talking for months and months about how more and more Latinos have been gravitating towards Republicans. Uh, The numbers just don't lie about that. Has your campaign campaign done anything differently to try and reach this important group of voters.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's a group of voters. Um, happily to say we won in the last cycle, but we don't take that for granted. So this campaign started uh, with a listening tour and we met with a number of our major, um, both political and nonprofit Latino community organizing groups. I've continued to have ongoing dialogue with them about priorities for the community, um, going on and, and doing interviews on on Spanish radio, um, being at events, making sure that we are available and accessible to the community. We'll continue to do that when we have a Latino issues roundtable coming up in the next couple of weeks in the district and, and delivering. You know, it, I think what has been the case in a number of, you know, for lack of better word, subgroup communities is that cycle after cycle, people like me show up and we need your vote. We need your vote. We need your vote. And then nothing is delivered that materially improves the circumstances of their life and nobody uh, carries through or or executes on those promises. And so it's a matter of really delivering for people and making sure that they understand that as voting members of the community, not simply because of the group they identify with, but because they are voters in this community, their vote really matters. And when they turn out, they change the narrative.
0: Right, right. Now, my oldest kid, Savannah, uh, as mentioned, Savannah had a question for you. Uh, Savannah said, "I'd really love to see Christie's climate change focus being on indigenous practices, lifting up uh, native voices in that regard, and sustainable land management for the region. But anything climate action related is good." And Uh, Savannah said, let her know I said hello and thank you for listening to folks my age. So in terms of specific legislation or specific action, what kinds of initiatives will you be supporting in terms of climate change, especially in light of folks uh, Savannah's age or, or your daughter's ages?
1: Yeah, well, I, I there's a couple of things I love about uh, Savannah's question. First and foremost, you're welcome. And remind all of your friends that if 18 to 30 year olds vote, you change this election specifically, you really do. Uh, so please turn out and vote. But when it comes to climate, this is so personal, probably is for you too, with young kids at home. But um, I have two young adult daughters who, given the climate catastrophe that is looming, don't see a future for themselves that looks as bright or You know, I wouldn't say our lives were were necessarily easy growing up, but this wasn't looming over us, you know, in the 80s and 90s like it looms over these kids that there are going to be these continue to be these significant climate catastrophes. And right now we see 30% of Pakistan underwater. We've seen significant flooding here in the United States, an entire United States city uh, had been without drinking water for, you know, a week uh, because of flooding. And so We need to continue to move in the direction of clean, renewable energy nationally. We've got to get that infrastructure in place. We have to commit to it with everything in our heart and start to make that transition sooner rather than later. But we've really got to think about water, too. And evidence shows us very clearly that we will continue to be challenged um, in that respect globally. Our own United States Defense Department says climate change is the single biggest threat to international um, security, safety and security, and water is the leading cause there as nations find themselves without usable sources of water, um, that will be disastrous. And we're seeing it right here in the United States, and with respect to Savannah's concern for you know the the climate practices of Indigenous peoples, she's spot on. And I this is part of the reason I'm so grateful to have grown up in the Midwest um, for about 10 years is that we really did a heavy emphasis on understanding Indigenous cultures and particularly their agricultural practices, their practices of restoring to the earth what you had taken from her. And we you know just a few centuries of us getting away from that, and we find ourselves in really Circumstances. There are countries who are doing it well, but it's you know it's reducing solid waste and a dependence on plastic packaging and being mindful about our water consumption. There are practical everything, everyday things that we can do as individuals, but what we need to start requiring corporate and industrial America to do as well to be part of the solution.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So one other issue I did want to ask you about, a lot of LAPD and Sheriff's Department uh, families live up in this district. Uh, Right. So I saw a National Republican Congressional Committee uh, press release uh, from last week. The primary argument they made at the top of the release was Smith believes we need to reform law enforcement by adding professionals like social workers, housing advocates and drug abuse experts. And I thought, wait, is this a bad thing? (laughs) You know, I mean. I think they were trying to attack you on the whole to fund the police thing, but the way they were quoting you, your position actually sounds pretty reasonable. So did you want to right. <laughs> even for a conservative like me? Like
1: <laughs> I so appreciate this because because they again, the, the other side just lies. We're we're in a moment now where there's no way to be nice about it, other than to say they're lying. I tweeted one time when the American Rescue Plan was being passed at Mike Garcia saying, you talk about defund the police all the time. You're literally about to vote against a bill that will require our local county and city governments to reduce force because they will not have the resources to pay for those salaries. Like literally you, you personally are defunding the police right now. Not that I am in support of that. But my position on reform comes from the direct work that I was very privileged to do with our local sheriffs and especially our our LAPD, who invited me for ride-alongs and conversations with officers and leadership about the challenges they face day in, day out in doing the work in the community. And they are doing the best that they can. But you're talking about officers who were not trained to be substance abuse advisors or mental health professionals or housing advocates, that it's not their role. And so they do it as part of their daily practice to help us keep our streets safe. But it's not training they have, and it's certainly not resources they've been connected to. And so good models of community policing integrate all of those supportive services across the county and give law enforcement officers the resources they need to be able to pass that call on to a professional who can help and then move on to a call where they're solving a property crime or preventing a property crime um, and doing things that really do keep us safe. And so it is just such a, a belligerently ignorant argument that the Republicans keep making that people don't support public safety. Of course we do. And by supporting public safety, that also means we support getting weapons of war off our streets. It is so ironic that they will, you know, in the same week that a tragedy happens like the Uvalde shooting, also be calling some of us out on being against public safety. It's ridiculous. You cannot believe in public safety unless you believe in demilitarizing American streets and getting weapons of war off of them and out of the hands of criminal people who shouldn't have them. And, you know, that is a crisis that is a bipartisan issue. Our polling finds that many people, including Republicans, are at a point where they want to see significant gun legislation.
0: Are there certain... Current representatives from the GOP in the House that you can see working with. So specifically, there's a caucus in the Congress called the Problem Solvers Caucus. Can you envision becoming a part of that caucus? And um, are there there folks uh, on the Republican side of the aisle that you can envision working with?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to take a wait and see when I get there. It's definitely a caucus I would like to be a part of and get to know individual members themselves from from both parties uh, to see where we land on issues in common. But knowing and understanding, as we've talked about before, you know, both parties come to that caucus with individual pressures. Um, from from their own parties. And so where are the areas that we can agree and where are we going to be able to move pieces of legislation? And particularly, I'm still hopeful that we hold the House. I think it's significant uh, and important that Democrats do all that we can to hold the House right now, because again, voting rights are at stake and significant policy issues that we really need to make progress on. But in the event that we didn't, I, I have no intention of going to Washington, D.C. to be a lame duck member. I want to actually get things done. And if if a problem solvers caucus is my way to do it, then absolutely I'll be at that table.
0: We'll put one, one vote in for you joining the problem solvers caucus, <laughs> although I understand it's going to be harder because a lot of Republicans who have been part of that caucus, John Katko, for example, yeah. are not going to be or any number of the folks who voted for impeachment the second time around are not gonna be part of uh, Congress going forward. So it's gonna be, I understand at least for a time, it's gonna be harder and harder to find folks to collaborate with across the aisle, but as one of your constituents uh, or would be constituents, I would vote, uh, I would encourage you to, to work hard to find folks across the aisle that you can collaborate with. So I've been able to ask you a lot, a lot of what I wanted to as a follow-up here, but did you have any questions for me?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm so fascinated. I'm so grateful you brought me on again. And and as you said, your audience is growing. And when you first, you know, pitched this idea that you were going to be doing this podcast, your goal was, you know, to bring people together on issues where we could agree to disagree or agree, but to be able to just have principled civil conversations and just wanted to, you know, check your pulse. How's it going?
0: You know, I'm, I'm really grateful that, it, that it's going well. Uh, we face some obstacles because a lot of folks see that that last part of the title of our program without killing each other. Like, really? Can you do that? You know. And we faced a lot of the typical comments, you know, that are hidden behind these anonymous accounts uh, lobbed our way all the time. But that's okay. You know, I don't expect with this, you know, program, even with our growing audience, we're still just a drop in the ocean. But you know what? I, I don't expect to snap my fingers and solve all of our problems of contentiousness overnight. But what I think I can do is I can talk to one human being at a time and make one human connection at a time. And for every person who's listening and then does participate in more constructive conversations, any other places uh, where we engage with folks, uh, whether it's out in person or just even in some of our online places, uh, we are having constructive conversations. And the other thing too, to keep in mind is that You know, when I do have a human connection, I don't expect somebody who is a big Second Amendment person to change their views completely and be on board with all kinds of reform. But maybe, maybe after one, I'm going out for a beer uh, a little later this week with a a friend of mine uh, here in this in this valley, in this district, um, who, you know, first thing you see when you walk into his garage is this huge gun, you know, uh, it's uh, like a locker or whatever. so yeah. he's a big a 2A guy, you know. But I, so I don't expect him to be a big, um, you know, to change his views 180 degrees after one conversation. But my hope, if my hope is simply to add some nuance uh, to how he perceives folks who really do want some reform in that area, um, that's a win. But at the same time, here's, I, I also have to remind myself that. If I go in simply looking to prove him wrong or or to change his views, I'm not going to get anywhere. But if I go in hoping to understand his views a little bit better, you know because I, I don't know like, I don't know what eight about 825 I don't know about that stuff. So if nothing else, maybe he can teach me like why he's enthusiastic about it, why it's so important to him. Mm-hmm. and then we can have a, a more productive effect on each other at least to have a more productive conversation about it than what you typically see online. So, in that regard, mm-hmm. I'm really encouraged to see the some great conversations we've had across a wide array of folks. I will say the only types the only um lane that hasn't come on the program and that doesn't seem to be participating are those uh the the election denying lane. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, folks, yeah. it, it's funny cuz even folks like the way I describe it is if you could imagine folks that went to the Stop the Steal rally uh, on January 6th, there are folks like from my church that were all on board for that that I can still have a conversation with. But I think the line for me is the folks who actually march down to the Capitol and storm the Capitol. So I, I want to hold out hope, but I have to be realistic that there. Listen, uh, as Peter Wainer said in a in a recent conversation, there are some folks that are just not reachable, and we have to fight against uh, those who can't be reached by reality, um, and and fight against uh, some of the tendencies. Uh, so, some of what's happening out in our culture and in our politics uh, due to some of that, um, while at the same time holding out hope for folks that can be persuaded, which is why I asked you some of the questions that I did today.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and I think that's the sweet spot. And, and especially when it comes to our elections. OK, what are what are the ways that we can make this so transparent that that voters who went down that path for a little while are willing to come back and still say, no, American elections are secure? And accessible and we believe in them and we believe in the people who count the votes and give us the tallies and um, can get behind you know whoever is elected as our leader you know as, as we had you know done for a lot of generations in this in this country we got to get back to that
0: great great so before we go let us know how can we find you online and, and uh, about your can learn more about your campaign and all that good stuff
1: yeah it's it's really easy all the links you would need are at christy c h r i s t y 4 f o r congress.org so christy for congress.org links you to everything you need
0: yeah christy with a y not an ie uh christy smith yeah <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today it's great to catch up with you and uh i hope to see you in person live out on the trail here really i
1: soon. know in person thanks so much corey
0: you bet and as always if you dig what we're doing here please follow us leave a review and comment wherever you get your podcasts and again, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash politics and religion. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the "and" spelled out, A-N-D politicsandreligion.us and we're on all the socials at Pod. you know Pod for talking politics and religion pod and here's a big way you can support us by becoming one of our patrons you can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on the kinds of questions we explore or just help us keep the lights on but mostly we really appreciate you giving us a listen So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.